This is Macro Horizons, Episode 1, Welcome to 2019, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts for the upcoming week of January 14th. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. Thanks, Ian. Given how the year has started, we thought now would be a good opportunity for you to update us on how the outset of 2019 has changed or modified your market call from a few weeks ago. Thanks, Ben. That's a great question. I've actually been contemplating how, if at all, I might change my outlook for 2019, given the price action that we've seen over the last five or six weeks. The first thing that comes to mind is the general themes remain, at least in my mind. The curve is going to continue the process of flattening. The long end of the curve will outperform. The Fed still, to a large extent, is responsible for flattening to inversion. And at the end of the day, if the Fed does want to stop the flattening, all they need to do is to pause. The question then becomes, has Powell signaled a earlier willingness to pause than the market was anticipating? The short answer to that is yes. If you look at the Fed Funds futures market uh, in and around the non-farm payrolls print, what we saw was the market content to price in up to 18 basis points of easing in 2019. That certainly didn't hold, and I wouldn't expect that to become the narrative going forward. However, the idea that the Fed is up against the realities of the damage done to risk assets from prior rate hikes, I think is very clear. And that's going to be the story that I'm focused on over the course of the next two or three months as we see how the data actually does uh, transpire. So in terms of actual specific levels, I still think that we end 2019 with 10-year yields in a 250 to 275 range. I think that's very consistent with moving forward through the business cycle, as well as the fact that the Fed at this point would seem uh, quite lucky to be able to put up at least one more rate hike in 2019. Again, the caveat here being that the pendulum of market sentiment does have a strong tendency to swing rather dramatically. And I would expect that if the Fed isn't comfortable pausing in the first half of 2019, that they will have to start to walk the market back from the idea that they're, that they're stepping aside for the time being. Given that the dramatic yield move we've seen starting in November has been primarily a function of falling break-evens rather than a meaningful change in real yields, what do you see as the main reason behind this and how does that impact uh, your view on the curve going forward? Well, that's something that we've been giving a great deal of thought to. And I think that at its essence, what we saw was a 
repricing based on inflation expectations because of what's going on globally in terms of falling commodity prices combined with the realities of a slower growth profile, particularly in China and a few key emerging markets, as well as the uh, as well as the situation being faced in Europe. So I think that that it follows intuitively that we saw it expressed in break evens. The big question now in my mind becomes, well, what happens if we see a continuation in the form of lower real yields? And that would imply some type of monetary policy action, whether it is simply the pricing out of future rate hikes, or if it's a pricing in of potential uh, rate cuts in 2020 and beyond. From a technical perspective, we have moved relatively quickly, and the price action is somewhat uh, overextended, which begs the question, shouldn't we be uh, having a moment of consol- or a period of consolidation to build up a volume bulge to move a bit further? I think that that is certainly not inconsistent with the idea that the market is debating whether or not these uh, these levels will actually hold. And I think that we'll, we'll see that play out uh, over the course of the next week or two. As for what this means for our curve view and how we would expect the the fact that it was a, a largely a break evens drive uh, that got us to these levels. I think it does speak to the idea that if we see a lowering of policy expectation or policy rate expectations, you might actually see a re-steepening led by the front end at least initially as even more is priced out uh, of the two-year sector, it then implies that at some point we will and, and we will see a typical kind of uh, late cycle, late to end of cycle uh, steepening of the curve. Now, that's a very traditional dynamic at, as the Fed comes to the end of its tightening campaign. And so the big trade for 2019 has been timing the pause or the end of the cycle and and estimating the extent to which the curve is able to re-steepen. One of the aspects of monetary policy in its current state that makes this cycle somewhat different has been the introduction of uh, QE as a policy tool. Regardless of whether or not the Fed would truly like to ever expand their balance sheet again to address uh, a slowdown or a significant recession, the fact of the matter is the market believes that it is an option that's out there. And so that, to some extent, will limit how far a re-steepening can occur when in the, like I mentioned, in the very traditional end of the cycle pause. So that's one of the factors that we're looking at. Uh, does that mean that we won't get into triple digits again for twos, tens? Probably not. I, probably, I could easily see that happening. Uh, it does suggest to me that a curve uh, significantly north of 150 basis points will be uh, difficult to see unless we actually do see a very, very aggressive easing campaign in the near term. Turning back to monetary policy for a second, do you think the Fed is done hiking? And Powell's recent introduction of the word flexible, does that mean two hikes in 2019 rather than zero? How is that shaping your view for monetary policy? From my perspective, I always thought that the Fed would continue hiking until they broke something, whether the something that they broke was in the real economy or whether it was an asset market. That's the 
biggest open question, and it appears, or at least the, la- the experience of the last six weeks would suggest that the first thing that's going to break is going to be the equity market and risk assets. So does that mean that the Fed doesn't want to continue hiking rates? I would assume that they certainly do want to continue if that if it can be accomplished without doing damage to the real economy. And that's the, that's the question. That's really the, the concern that we have at this point. It just became a lot more difficult for the Fed to pull off a March rate hike unless we have a particularly strong set of data uh, outside of the employment market. Obviously, non-farm payrolls was a very strong print, and uh, it wasn't necessarily news, however, that the labor market continues to be very tight. There's been this assumption that higher average hourly earnings were eventually going to translate through to a gain in core CPI, that hasn't happened thus far. Uh, Even a strong one-off print on the core figures have been easy enough for the Fed and the market to dismiss, and if anything, has have only contributed to the flattening bias that we've been seeing in the Treasury market. So be nice if the Fed, from their perspective, could follow through with their projections. I think it just became much more uncertain. And if anything, a pause in the next quarter or two seems to be the path of least resistance. The word flexibility, I think, is a clear signal by the Fed that they're willing to reconsider the the cadence that was in place for 2018, i.e. 25 basis points a quarter, and consider other factors, whether those factors are price action in other asset markets or whether they're overseas developments, uncertainty related to trade policy, or a variety of things that have created the type of headwinds that brought 10-year yields back to that 254% mark. You've mentioned the performance of stocks. So given the recent drop we've seen in equities, do you think this is more like a 1987 correction or a 2007 crisis environment? Well, it certainly doesn't feel like a 2007 crisis environment. But even at the beginning of that move, it didn't feel like it was going to reach the depths that it ultimately did. To the 2000. And seven crisis would also imply a significant correction in other key fixed income assets uh, or even real property. So I think that it's a bit early to expect that that type of the shift is in the offing. A 1987-style crash with a, that didn't really do a great deal of damage to the real economy outside of obviously an erosion on the wealth effect front, uh, I think is the current assumption. And I think that the Fed's willingness to respond and address that is going to be tested and frankly is being tested at this moment. Uh, That said, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Fed err on the side of being a bit more cautious, particularly if the bear market in equities manages to persist or, or extend from here. As the market begins to question how far the Fed is willing to push things, do you think we've returned to a point where bad news is good again, insofar as it means negative economic data will imply Fed inaction, which therefore will flow through to equity outperformance? We're right up against the point 
where I think we're, we're going to transition into a period where the equity market starts to trade well off of bad economic news. Uh, that was certainly the experience throughout much of the post-crisis environment. And it really wasn't until 2015, 2016 that we really started to see uh, the economic optimism take hold, translate into good news being good for risk assets. It is an interesting dynamic and one that is always difficult to to time the transition. Uh, and again, it's not going to be a clean transition. One day we wake up and everything that's bad for the economic outlook and could lead to a Fed rate cut or pause is going to be um, automatically bullish for equities, but rather there'll be these periods, which I, I would argue we're in a transition period now, where there is a feedback loop between higher rates and the damage that does to the equity market and the converse. And I think that that's what is playing out at this moment. So we've talked about flexible and how Powell has introduced that idea into the market recently. There's been a lot of discussion around use of balance sheet policy and how that might be adjusted going forward into 2019. How are you viewing the risks surrounding any tweaks to the rundown of the Fed's balance sheet? Well, Powell certainly did put the balance sheet back on the table with his recent comments uh, promoting the notion of flexibility and no predetermined uh, path. The equity market responded well to that. Uh, the treasury market uh, obviously responded in kind as well. The underlying question of how far the Fed is going to be able to shrink the balance sheet, I think, is an important one, one that really means while the Fed wanted to find themselves in a situation where they were back to just one primary policy tool, at this point, it seems as though they're going to be stuck with both rates and the size of the balance sheet. It will probably become far more urgent for the Fed to shift its balance sheet uh, pace of uh, runoff if we find ourselves with another uh, front-end backup like we saw at the beginning of 2018 uh, and the deficit financing coming from the Treasury Department is once again focused in the bill market. Uh, that combined with uh, any slowing in the real economy or another extension or another episode or an extension of the present episode that we're seeing play out in risk assets. So uh, unlike in the middle of 2016, when it was assumed that the Fed's balance sheet runoff was going to be on autopilot until it got until the Fed got the balance sheet to the desired levels, I think that what we're seeing at this moment in time is the introduction of the balance sheet as a, a variable, not necessarily a given in, in terms of the rundown. One of the primary bearish concerns for treasuries going into 2018 was increasing supply and maybe some indigestion at auctions. And what we've seen so far in 2018 was a deterioration of the bid cover ratios across tenors. What does this suggest to you going forward for primary issuance treasuries and auction performance in general? Well, one of the bit most bearish risks for last year was that this big onslaught of treasury supply was finally able to recast treasury yields to a higher plateau. While we did see a solid attempt at sustaining 
above 3% 10 year yields, uh, each foray ultimately did end up being uh, temporary and relatively short lived. That said, I'm not completely of the mind that supply doesn't matter to the treasury market. I will, however, argue that the supply and demand dynamic is far less important to the 10 and 30 year sector of the market. In fact, 10 and 30 years tend to be driven off of the simple or not so simple macro assumptions of growth, inflation, and longer term monetary policy. What has made the current experience somewhat different than prior cycles is not only do we have layered on this this additional supply dynamic, a very atypical this late into the business cycle. However, or excuse me, in addition, we also have the idea that over the last three or four decades, treasury trading has become far more globalized. And so this means that what is going on in in China or in Europe or in emerging markets actually does translate through to 10 and 30 year treasury yields. Part of it is global growth and inflation. Part of it is the storied savings glut. Part of it is simply a flight to liquidity in times of economic or asset stress. So I think that uh, as it pertains further out the curve, the fact that the bid covers have been falling simply reflects the fact that auction sizes have been increasing. So in that extent, or from that extent, it follows very intuitively. In the front end, I think that there is a somewhat more, or there is somewhat more urgency given the amount of auction supply that there has been, particularly in the bill market. Now, I'll I'll make the argument that it was opportunistic for the Treasury Department to have the amount of borrowing that it needs to do occur at at a time when the Fed is actively raising rates. So front-end yields became higher, more attractive. Had we been in an environment where the Fed was still on hold or had rates sub 1% and the Treasury Department needed to do the amount of borrowing that they had to, I would expect that we would have seen more significant supply indigestion. We would have seen more tailed auctions. We would have seen bigger concessions into and out of these supply events. Not that we didn't see concessions, not that auctions haven't tailed, but it hasn't been the dramatic reshaping of expectations for supply and sponsorship in U.S. Treasuries. One of the other primary worries in this regard was that foreign buying in treasuries would evaporate. And as a result, we would see, again, that repricing higher or to a higher rate plateau or higher yield plateau. Uh, Interestingly, we've seen Japanese buying to a large extent, as evidenced in the MOF data and the the data they publish monthly, uh, in treasuries has dried up over the course of the last year, year and a half. There have been a few months in which there were net flows. Now that can be explained by how unattractive treasuries are on a hedged basis. But the fact of the matter is Japan hasn't been a significant buyer. Chinese, at least according to the tick data, Chinese flows have been net outflows in longer dated treasuries. And if that's the reality, then 
what happens when those trends shift and we have Japanese investors coming back in and adding treasuries and we have a return of Chinese sponsorship presumably once we get through the trade war tensions that are currently in play. I think if anything, that puts a cap on, on, excuse me, on how far 10-year yields are, 10 and 30-year yields are able to back up in this environment. The front end is still very mechanically linked to monetary policy and policy expectations. So again, supply and demand there, uh, far less of a fundamental concern. Thanks for those answers. And to anyone interested, please feel free to reach out and submit questions for discussion on subsequent episodes. Now, Ian, how are you thinking about the next several sessions and what's to come for the market? Thanks, Ben. In the week ahead, the record-setting government shutdown will limit the incoming data as the phrases flying blind and policy punt become aptly descriptive. Don't count on seeing retail sales anytime soon. The demonstrated ability of treasuries to retain the bulk of December's rally leads us to the classic bond trading adage, never short a quiet market. Welcome to 2019. The concert of dovish Fed speak has taken a March rate hike completely off the table, both in terms of Fed funds futures pricing and broader market expectations. Policymakers typically operate at a measured and deliberate pace suggesting that a pause in March doesn't quickly get reversed via a return to the quarterly hiking cadence. Powell's willingness to respond to the sell-off in domestic equities so decisively signals a durable shift in the Fed's reaction function to external markets and overseas developments. Stocks have taken a great deal of solace from a friendlier Fed, leaving us to ponder just how long the positive sentiment can persist. The partial shutdown hasn't really mattered yet, But as D.C. continues to run on half power with both sides of the budget debate deeply entrenched, our primary concern becomes the moment at which investors conclude, aha, we don't actually have a fully functioning government. Hmm. At present, the shutdown is simply risk restraining. As day 30 approaches, a more palpable risk-off read will be a better characterization. Earnings season is upon us, and the recent emphasis on forward guidance surely offers a degree of apprehension. As Europe's economy continues to show strains from the global trade saga, U.S. manufacturing is stumbling, and tariffs are trickling through to core inflation, the list of recessionary indicators keeps growing. Contributing further to our generalized apprehension are reports of China's intention to set a lower GDP target of 6 to 6.5% in 2019 as Beijing reevaluates the full impact of tariffs on production. Although the estimate isn't expected to be officially released until the parliamentary session in March, it's still another troubling development for the global outlook as it compounds what is already seen as last year's 6.6% Chinese growth rate, the lowest since 1990. Watch this space, as they say. The Fed's apparent comfort with a hikation leads to the obvious question of how the Treasury market responded the last time the FOMC adopted a wait-and-see policy stance. With comparisons drawn between Yellen's 2016 hiking respite and Powell's soft landing endeavor, we glanced at the performance of Treasuries the last time a hike in December 2015 was followed by 12 months on hold. In this instance, the reaction of yields was unequivocally a bull flattening as 10-year yields fell 95 basis points to their lowest level ever 
and twos tens pushed 55 basis points flatter only seven months into the pause. This move was all eventually reversed and then some as the Fed restarted the normalization campaign, but nonetheless offers an appropriate baseline as we ponder the months ahead. A cyclical curve steepener was always going to be the big trade of 2019, although we've been anticipating this would be a bullish move inspired by the limits of the Fed's ability to continue hiking versus a bearish repricing to higher yields. Twos trading through effective funds, inverted Fed funds and eurodollar curves, as well as the growing drumbeat of recession predictions, have led to the first stage of this dynamic, i.e., entering a lower yield environment. As investors begin looking beyond the current cycle and more seriously considering the potential for rate cuts within the next two years, we'll be watching for the steepening to finally take hold in a durable fashion. Our interpretation of the current macro landscape is that it's too soon to count the Fed out of the tightening game, which leaves us open to a grind back to the flat extremes from December. There's a lot of data between now and the June meeting, and hopefully the government will reopen at some point and provide a glimpse of it to the market. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. 
This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter. And information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.